is Ella Kate Marisi, and you are listening to More Than Child's Play with your host, my mommy, Lacey Marisi, and my Aunt Nicole Surgeon. They're authors, therapists, and most importantly, mommies. And man, can they talk. So sit back and relax and learn from their village. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of More Than Child's Play podcast. This is Lacey Marisi, co-owner of Milestones and Miracles and pediatric speech-language pathologist. And today I am excited to be joined by Sydney Bassard, the face behind the listening SLP. Welcome, Sydney. Hi, thanks for having me today. Absolutely. We're glad you could join us, and we're excited for you to share all that you know about hearing, um, identifying hearing loss in these little ones, and getting them the help they need. So thank you for being with us. So I just want to go ahead and um, familiarize the audience with your bio. So Sydney is a pediatric SLP with a clinical focus on working with children who are deaf and hard and hard of hearing and literacy. She's passionate about early detection and intervention for those who are deaf and hard of hearing. And Sydney is an advocate for assisting families to find functional ways to build language. And I discovered Sydney through the wonderful world of Instagram. She has a an awesome account on Instagram where she share, shares lots of good information for professionals in the field, but also for families. So if you haven't started following her on Instagram, I encourage you to do so. She's at the listening SLP. And she also has a Facebook account where she's also very active and sharing good information there. So check both of those out. Sydney, you know, I wanted to bring you on because you specialize in this area of um, working with kiddos and identifying kiddos who have hearing loss. And I think if we would ask anybody off the street, you know, do you think hearing is important for learning to talk? I think they would say yes. I mean, I think we all know that, but I think some of us who aren't in the field maybe don't appreciate exactly how important hearing is for the development of speech and language. So can you kind of share with our audience why it's so critically important that children from the very youngest age, early in infancy, really need to be able to hear and hear well to develop speech and language? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I think the first thing they realize is like, there are some children who are born deaf and they're born to deaf parents. And those families sometimes choose to just go the sign language route. And that is totally fine and well within their rights. Um, I focus more on children who are using listening and spoken language to communicate. And so if that is the route that you want to choose if your child is born deaf or hard of hearing, the reason it's so important is because hearing starts actually in utero. So around 18 weeks, like that's when kids can first start like hearing sounds. So when a child's born deaf or has like a significant hearing loss, they've missed out on like that critical period, even while in development of like starting to hear sounds and, you know, pick up and detect what sounds are. So if you're going to choose that route, early intervention, early detection is super key because research is showing like the earlier that a child is using amplification and getting skilled service from therapy, um, the better their outcomes are showing to be for listening and spoken language further down the road. Right. And that's interesting. I mean, even as an SLP, I don't think often about in utero, the baby not hearing, but that's important also. You know, I didn't even think about that, that that critical piece of hearing, even in utero. I was just thinking, you know, after they're born, the importance of hearing speech and language, but it it begins like all other development during the pregnancy, right? Yeah. So 
And like doctors always tell moms, like, you know, your baby can hear your voice or read to your baby, sing to your baby. Like that's, that's real. You know, it's really soothing when a baby's first born to hear mom's voice or, you know, know that mom is right there. So when you've kind of missed out on that critical piece of development, we want to go ahead and get every, the ball rolling sooner than later. Um, and I think the cool thing is like babies can be fit for hearing aids as early as one month of age. So Pretty much as soon as you come out, as long as we know um, kind of what we're dealing with, we can go ahead and put amplification on. Wow. Yeah. One month old. That's amazing. This must be some tiny little hearing aids. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, so uh, when we can't hear or hear as well as we should, our language development, our development of speech is impacted. Those kiddos that don't get the amplification as early as they should, what else can be impacted by that? that lack of, you know, hearing. Yeah. So I think what we can sometimes see is like behavioral things tend to develop, um, especially if the family is choose like does not know, or there's not another communication system in place. So communication is like a right. And it's something that we all need to kind of communicate our wants and needs and children, especially. So if they're kind of lacking that or don't have that ability to communicate with mom and dad, um, we see frustration. You might see behavioral outbursts. Um, Sometimes other aspects of development are also going to potentially appear delayed as well. Uh, Some of these children sometimes get diagnosed as autistic uh, when that may not be the case at all. It's just their hearing is impacting everything else in their life. And that's just the one component that hasn't been assessed or addressed. Right. So it can filter down to other areas of development and impact everything if these kids aren't identified early enough and treated early enough. Okay. So babies, I've done, I'm doing a CEU presentation and part of it is is talking about hearing loss and that um, newborn hearing screening. So I have pulled some research um, from 2017 from the CDC's website. So centers, the Center for Disease Control. And as of 2017, I believe the data collected in 2017 said that 98% of all newborns born that year were, did have their hearing screened um, in the hospital right after they were born. So that was really good. Although it surprised me that not all states require that newborn hearing screening. It said 43 states have some type of statute or regulatory language around newborn hearing screening. Um, but again, I was surprised by that because I just thought everybody, every hospital screened babies hearing, but they, but they don't all screen. So if you're, if your baby is born in a hospital or a birthing facility where they do screen their hearing, they're going to do that initial screen. Now, sometimes babies don't pass that initial screen. And why is that Sydney? So there's several factors that can kind of, um, be in play when a child isn't passing that initial newborn hearing screen. Sometimes they're still like afterbirth within the ear canal. Um, Sometimes they might be cranky. Like there are are a lot of different factors that could be in play that aren't necessarily a true hearing loss in the moment. So if a baby doesn't pass that initial screen, generally they'll uh, give them time. The newborn hearing screener will come back and they'll retest while you're still at the hospital to kind of see if they pass that second time or if they get another fail. 
Okay. And, and so let's assume baby passes that second screening. So parents go home and, and I mean, I've been there, I've had three children. I, they all passed that newborn hearing screening. So I really kind of checked it off my list, right? Like, okay, hearing's good. I don't need to worry about hearing. Now I knew being a speech language pathologist, if they had a bunch of ear infections or something, certainly I needed to worry about that later down the road. But, you know, again, I crossed it off my mental list of worries and I was glad to, but sometimes those screenings are just screenings and there can be milder loss that isn't identified by that screen in the hospital. So let's just familiarize our audience with what are some of the signs and symptoms that parents should be looking for in their little ones, infants, toddlers that might indicate hearing loss, or at least indicate to them that they should, you know, talk to their pediatrician about the possibility of hearing loss. I think that that is a great question because there are so many kids, um, especially that I'm seeing now that kind of fall into that category of like the, the hearing loss is milder. It's not as severe. So some things that you can look for are, is your baby kind of attending to their name when you're calling their name? Are they startling to loud sounds? I think even when, uh, so loud sounds would be more prevalent, you know, if we're having something that's a little bit more moderate to severe, but even looking at those kids that might have a milder loss, like, are they startling to like typical environmental sounds that maybe aren't the loudest, but ones that you should still kind of turn your head to look to. So I would think like a timer going off that's in close proximity or like the microwave beeping, um, even like the doorbell ringing, those types of things I would look for. Um, Sometimes even looking for like, are they kind of hyperactive? Are we having like lack of engagement? Those can all be things um, that could be contributed. So those are kind of areas, the big ones that I would look for, not attending to our name, not startling the loud sound, uh, kind of that like disconnect when we're trying to engage. With the child. Yeah. And I know I, when I do speech and language evaluations, I work in early intervention. So with little ones, I'll ask the family, you know, just to kind of ask some of those questions, you know, to make sure hearing, you know, seems to be okay behaviorally within the home anyway. Um, you know, I always recommend they get the child's hearing screened, but, um, ask those questions. And I feel like sometimes I have to differentiate for parents when the child might be following visual cues versus hearing cues. Um, and I think the big example would be, you know, parents will say, oh yeah, when I turn the TV on, he looks right away. Well, did he see you pick up the remote? Because <laughs> that visual cue would then lead him to know that. So are there any other examples of maybe visual cues like that that might be kind of masking that there could be a possible hearing loss because the child, again, just follows the visual cue? Uh, so I think gestures are a big one. And there's nothing wrong with that. I, I mean, I think we all use gestures of pointing or waving. So if we're using those things, which parents do, and that's totally appropriate to do that. but it could potentially be impacting, like, did the child really hear you or are they imitating? Um, it's typical for babies to imitate facial expressions, imitate gestures. So as they're getting older, they could just be imitating your actions without necessarily uh, having that auditory input that's coming into. So if you're kind of concerned and you're a little on the fence, one thing that I kind of do with some of the kids I work with is we start with a lot of gestures because that's how you can gain a child's attention. But if you wanna kind of see at home, you could maybe do the same things that you're doing, but without using the gestural cue, see if they still kind of follow suit in that way. 
Yeah, that's a good suggestion, right? Okay, good. Um, all right, so so that's good. We wanted to make sure, you know, we kind of make our audience and, and parents and professionals aware of those signs and symptoms to look for that could indicate possible hearing loss, just so we can investigate that and know for sure if a child might have any loss um, and so that we can get them treated as soon as possible. So let's back up. So let's let's now talk about the baby that fails that newborn hearing screening the first time and the second time in the hospital. So what typically happens after that second failed screening for that infant? So there's an agency called EDI, which is the Early Hearing Detection and Identification Agency. So that information gets entered into a database and then the newborn hearing screener should give the parents uh, information about following up with the pediatrician uh, and following up with a pediatric audiologist. Sometimes what we see when kids show up later is like the follow-up didn't happen due to various reasons. People move, um, people aren't too comfortable, they don't go back to the pediatrician for a while, or it's just not brought up. So if your child does fail that second time, Follow up with the doctor is super, super important. And then following up with that pediatric audiologist, because they're able to do um, more tests than just the screening. They'll be able to give like a full comprehensive hearing evaluation to really give you better information as if hearing loss is in play or not. Okay. And then you mentioned um, earlier, you were saying a child maybe who's born deaf to deaf or hard of, hear hard of hearing parents they might make the choice to do sign language right out of the gate to access language. What are the, and then you mentioned that you do a different type of therapy um, for children who are, you know, have hard of hearing or have hearing loss. So what are the options? Because I know the major thing, once we identify a kid with hearing loss, we want to get them access to language as soon as possible, right? So that we don't see that trickle down of other areas of development being impacted. Um, so what, what options are there for a child with hearing loss to access language? Yeah, so we generally think of the communication modalities and they're like kind of four main areas. So you have spoken language, then you have spoken plus visual cues. Um, then there's another one called like manual cued English. Then you have American Sign Language and cued speech is in there too. And so that's when you use hand signals to kind of cue the words as you're saying them. So those are the spectrum. And I call them a spectrum because sometimes I think as professionals, we try to put things in a box. So it's either spoken language or it's sign language. When the reality is kids can use all of these things to access great communication skills. Um, a lot of the kids that I work with are actually in total communication classrooms so total communication is an education philosophy uh, that was specifically geared for children who are deaf and hard of hearing. And what it, like the principle behind it is like you use sign, you use spoken language, you use visuals, you kind of use whatever it takes to communicate, like communicate messages effectively. Um, so I think the biggest thing for parents and the biggest thing for us as professionals is kind of to reshape our thinking about things. And instead of being like, well, this child's going to do this and this child's going to do that, it's really this child is going to use whatever they need to functionally communicate with the adults and the individuals in their lives. 
And, you know, that's very similar to the, the infants and toddlers that I work with that are diagnosed with delayed speech and language or delayed language, because we might model some sign and gestures. We might get some pictures in front of them and they might have some spoken words. So, you know, just like you're saying, we're giving them access to all that they need to be an effective communicator. So it lines right up with that. So that's perfect. Good. Um, so can you talk a little more specifically about the method that you use in your um, work? As yeah. an so I am currently going for my auditory verbal therapy certification. So that certification is specifically geared towards listening and spoken language. Uh, the families that I work with have chosen that as their primary language modality that they want to use with their child. So all of my kids use some type of amplification, uh, whether it's a hearing aid, a Baja, which is a bone anchored hearing aid, or a cochlear implant. So the principles of ABT rely a lot on listening and spoken language. Uh, so it's a lot of auditory input, a lot, a lot, a lot of auditory input. Mm -hmm. And it's really cool because it follows the early intervention model of parent coaching. Uh, so parents are pretty much always in my sessions. They're right there with us at the table participating. Uh, I generally model an activity with them for a little bit. And then I try to turn it over to them so that they can model it while they're within my session. We can talk about how that went great. What could we tweak? Um, and then kind of let them try some of these things at home. And then they come back next week and we discuss and debrief. Awesome. Yeah, we love the coaching model. <laughs> I work in EI. Nicole, my business partner, works in EI. So that's um, how we deliver our services also. And it's so effective, um, you know, giving parents the tools they need then to help their child at home and beyond. So that's awesome. And it's functional. I think that that's the one thing that I like about it the most is that like you can pick activities and you can pick goals that's functional for the family to kind of help make that family life, which might be a little bit stressful if our child's having communication difficulties, a little easier if we implement some things that immediately are going to impact. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because then it builds the parent's confidence. It builds the child's confidence. And then we create competency from that. And yeah, it just snowballs and takes off from there. So that's great. Okay. So you mentioned, um, you see children, um, who have hearing aid, different types of amplification, hearing aids, Baja, or what was the third one you said? Cochlear implant. Cochlear, yes. Cochlear just left me cochlear implant. So let's talk about those three options just generally for the audience so they can understand. So what would make, you mentioned earlier, a, a baby could be fit with a hearing aid as young as one month of age, which is so incredibly awesome. But what would make a child a candidate for a hearing aid versus a Baja versus a cochlear implant or a CI? Oh, yeah. So um, generally, before a child is considered for a cochlear implant, we're going to go the hearing aid route to see if they gain a benefit. So what does that mean? That just means like, are they demonstrating that they can understand sound um, or detect any sound, discriminate between that? Uh, most kids are not gonna go automatically to a cochlear implant based on the way that insurances are based. Like you have to show that you did the most least invasive thing before you do cochlear implants because that involves a surgery. Um, all kids that have hearing loss don't automatically go to a cochlear implant anyway. So it depends on your degree of hearing loss. Generally, like that mild to severe, uh, you can demonstrate some type of benefit from a hearing aid. But as kids get older or as their hearing loss progresses, we might consider a cochlear implant. 
It just kind of depends on the child and also kind of depends on the family if that's something that they want to consider because it does involve a surgery. Mm -hmm. Bajas are super cool because those are generally for children who have a conductive hearing loss. Uh, So what that means is like there's some type of um, malformation or like kind of like the outer ear may not be formed Um, as we would expect it to, or there could be something kind of going on with that middle ear space to where sound isn't transmitting as great. So this hearing aid actually doesn't go like directly in the ear canal for sound to travel through, kind of bypasses that whole section and it goes right uh, on your bone. And so sound is still able to get to that nerve, which is functioning by bypassing that system that may not be the um, greatest between the middle and the outer ear. Wow. That's pretty neat. Yeah. And so kids that are, are candidates more for hearing aids or cochlear implants, they have a, what you would call sensory neural loss, correct? Correct. Yeah. So a sensory neural hearing loss, uh, that just means that like there's some type of nerve damage between the cochlea all the way up to the auditory, to the brain. Um, so there's some, something is misfiring in there. Right. So then they're the candidate for for the either the hearing aid or the cochlear implant. Now, cochlear implants, how young can a child be to be a candidate or receive a cochlear implant? So it's really exciting in the US. So the FDA just lowered the age. So it used to be 12 months um, for on-label surgeries. Now it is nine months for on-label surgeries as FDA approved. And I say FDA approved because there are some hospitals and some doctors who do what we call off-label surgeries, just meaning that like they implant younger than what the FDA says. So you could find a baby like as early as six months. And in other countries, that's actually pretty typical practice. I know in Australia, they implant them super, super early. Um, So we we're a little bit more conservative with our number in the US, but you will find some uh, surgeons that'll go a little bit younger than nine months. Wow. That's awesome. I mean, it's so great to get these kids what they need as soon as they can get it in a safe way, of course. But yeah, that's exciting to hear that that age is a little bit younger even still. Good. Okay. So let's, let's back up and revisit. I just mentioned briefly a little bit ago, um, you know, parents check off their list, kiddo passed newborn hearing screening. We're good to go. Um, then baby starts getting a ton of ear infections and then we start getting worried because we know ear infections, or we have a baby who maybe carries fluid in their middle ear. What, what should parents know about those ear infections and how they impact hearing, um, what can they do to help their kid? What's your recommendations for that child who's suffering from several ear infections early in life? Yeah, so I think that that's actually pretty common. Uh, and the I like to tell parents why it's common. So the reason that like we see more hearing, I mean, not hearing, the reason we see more ear infections in children is because of the anatomy of the face. So your eustachian tube, which kind of rests a little bit um, like right in that cheek area. In kids, it's more horizontal and in adults, it's more vertical. So when you have like that fluid that kind of gets in that ear space for adults, it's easier to drain than for kids with that kind of horizontal anatomy, it's not draining as easily. So that I think that it's important for parents to know that like it's structural and it's not um, uncommon that this can happen. If it were my kid and they're having a lot of chronic ear infections, I would take them to the ENT and pediatric audiologist to go ahead and get that hearing checked. Um, Chronic ear infections can go ahead and cause 
what we call a conductive loss. So it's that loss that's affected by the outer and middle ear space. It's not allowing sound to transmit as we want it to to the cochlea, which would take it up to the uh, brain and process sound that way. There are several options that an ENT can go over with the family. Uh, tubes is one of the most common ones. So that kind of opens up that space so that if we are having any fluid in there, it's kind of draining and going out. So those are, I think, the biggest, biggest things to do. But like I said, I would definitely consult, especially if your child's having them chronically. Um, you know, antibiotics are great, but if we're this is consistent, we, we might want to consider some other options because it can cause that conductive loss. Absolutely. And I just want to empower parents, you know, maybe your pediatrician hasn't mentioned a hearing screening, but if your child is getting multiple hearing, you know, multiple ear infections and you and you have concerns advocate for that hearing screening that, you know, certainly you're allowed to speak up on your child's behalf. And that would be something reasonable to ask for um, with a child that's suffering from a lot of ear infections, their hearing is probably impacted. So, you, you know, just get that screen um, just to make sure and um, don't be afraid to advocate for your kid and, and ask the doctor what they think about that if they haven't brought it up to you. Yeah. And I think the biggest thing is like, it's not going to hurt. Like a hearing screening isn't going to hurt the child. Um, and it just gives you like more information as a parent as to kind of what's going on or what's at play. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I will oftentimes um, recommend a hearing screening to an infant or, or, you know, for an infant or a toddler. And the parent will be like, how can they really screen their hearing? They can't really figure that out at this age. So just because you're more familiar with this whole process, Sydney, can you explain to the audience what happens? at a hearing screening for a one-year-old or a two-year-old? How do they measure their hearing and how do they know or identify if there is any loss? Yeah, I mean, audiology is one of the coolest things and I'm very fortunate to get to work closely with ours. I've learned a lot with working with them. And so what we can see are they have different types of hearing tests. So most of us are more familiar with like um, where you hear beeps, you press a button or you raise your hand where you hear beeps but they have a whole different set of tricks for kids. Uh, so I think the first one is like, they can look at behavioral responses. So for smaller children, like we might look at their raising of the eyebrows or do they kind of look around the room or do they kind of do something with their body whenever they hear sound? So mm -hmm. behavioral response is one. There's another one called BRA. Um, and what BRA does is they have like lights and boxes. So as they play a sound, they give a child looks to it. It might light up with a toy inside. So that's uh, visual responses to kind of detect hearing that way. Then they also have one which is conditioned play. So you might do a couple of tests where like you hear the beeps and you put something in a bucket or you hear the beeps and you put something on a puzzle and then you can keep doing that over and over again. So there are multiple, multiple ways that we can kind of elicit uh, if a child is hearing. Right. And then what's just, again, to explain to the audience, the, um, I, the, the, the probe that goes in the ear, they're measuring, what's that test? <laughs> explain to us what that test is measuring. Okay. So that's, OAEs, I'm pretty oh, sure. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <Forget> yeah. <it>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so when they put OAEs in, that's generally looking for like, I'm pretty sure hair cell responses. Um, okay. So it's, it's also considered a screening. It's not really a test, but it can kind of give some good information. If your child is having more difficulty testing in the booth, it can give us just kind of a general screening as to like, are these hair cells operating as they're supposed to? 
Right. And that's, I believe the, the little probe that goes inside the ear. I know parents have explained that to me and then, yeah. yeah. OAEs, autoacoustic emissions, right? Okay. Okay, good. So, so from that, we, you know, from those early tests, we can be confident, you know, that what they identify from just observing babies' behavioral responses to sound within that booth for that hearing screening, you know, those, that's information that we didn't have before the test was conducted. And then we can take that information and then apply it to help the child to get them amplification or whatever is needed so that they can access that language and development can, you know, continue on um, as it should. And there won't be that trickle down impact, hopefully, you know, that impacts not only speech and language, like we talked, but other areas of development as well. So anything else you want to share with our audience about, um, Hearing loss and little signs and symptoms for families to look for anything extra. I think the biggest thing is kind of trust your gut. Uh, So the one thing that I hear with a lot of my families, especially of these kids that kind of come on my caseload a little bit older is that they saw signs, they saw symptoms, but they weren't sure. Or the doctor said, Oh, there's no, there's no worry for it. I think everything is fine. It seems like they're following directions. It never, never hurts to just get that second opinion. It never hurts to get that hearing screened and tested uh, because when you come on a little bit later, that's a critical period that may have been lost, but doesn't have to be lost. And we just go ahead and get that checked off. If you're working with a speech pathologist, I would always ask their opinion um, and then just go ahead and see if they recommend. I generally make it a rule that I always recommend, regardless of if it's a kid with hearing loss or not, to go ahead and get that hearing screened and evaluation. Um, If that wasn't something that's asked for, that's totally fine, but you can ask for it yourself as a parent. I was mentioned earlier, you don't have to wait for the professional to say something. You definitely can go investigate that yourself. Absolutely. And again, just empowering and reminding parents they're the expert on their child, right? You know, maybe the doctor doesn't, obviously the doctor's not seeing everything that's happening at home. If they have any doubts, like you said, trust your gut, speak up on behalf of your kiddo. It's always better to get it checked out and cross it off the list or start seeking and getting the help that the kid needs versus waiting down the road when more areas of development are impacted and still the child could be helped, but yeah, the sooner, the better. Right. And I think the other like big takeaway that I'd want parents to know is um, sometimes when like we, you hear that your child has a communication like delay or we're finding out that your child might have hearing loss and this was just not on your radar, it can feel like the end of the world because this was just not something you were expecting to deal with. And those feelings are okay. Those feelings are okay. Those feelings are valid. I highly encourage parents to connect with deaf adults. I think that's the one biggest thing that I have found from Instagram that's been helpful is it's hard to connect with deaf adults. I mean, if you're not like deaf or hard of hearing yourself, the reality that you like know an adult that is, is probably slim to none, but the internet has plenty of them that are out there and they are using their voice. So if you could find some of them, follow them. Um, I follow a couple of them. Mama Who Hears, Michelle is a pediatric audiologist, but she's also deaf and hard of hearing and wears cochlear implants. Uh, And then Jana at Hard of Hearing Mama is another one that I love chatting with. She's deaf and hard of hearing herself, but she's also raising two children that are deaf and hard of hearing. So I think that you get to connect with these people and see that like 
they are both very functional, thriving women um, and have done just fine, even though they're deaf and hard of hearing. So I think as parents seeing those positive examples of like, these people are adults and they're working and they're living lives and they're married and they're having families. Um, It's so encouraging when you're kind of down in the trenches to see there is light at that end of the tunnel. Yeah, absolutely. To connect with somebody that's either, yeah, in the trenches with you or going through the journey with you or have been through the journey and can inspire you and, and remind you that it's going to be just fine. It's going to be okay. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. And now Sadiq, how about if there's some professionals out there that want to maybe kind of deepen their understanding of hearing loss and treatment of hearing loss in, in children, any um, resources you recommend or continuing education courses that you recommend people checking out? Yeah, so depending on what you're looking for, um, so hearingfirst.org is a great one if you're looking into more of the realm of listening and spoken language. They offer free courses, which is really, really nice um, for observations or for like continuing ed. It like isn't ASHA approved, but it's fine. And I found that those have been really helpful. Um, Connecting with some researchers that kind of do the work with kids with uh, hearing loss is really important because they, a lot of them are doing um, like implementation type work, intervention type research. So Emily Lund is one that I really like her stuff for vocabulary. And then Crystal Werfel, who's at the University of South Carolina is also doing some really important research looking at listening and spoken language and literacy outcomes. So those are two of my like top ones that I can think of off the top of my, oh, and Ryan McCreary, who's at Boys Town, um, his lab also does some great work looking into these areas. So I kind of look in the realm of like, well, what are the researchers doing? What are they finding? I think that that's a great resource. Um, And then, you know, sometimes there's classes, like colleges have classes or different things like that. So you could always consider like taking a short course uh, to kind of expand your knowledge base in that area. ASHA has some good CEUs out there. There's textbooks. I'm giving you a lot of information. Um, Carol Flexer has a textbook that goes over like birth to three, working with children with hearing loss, the care project um, that deals more with family interactions. But I find that that is an excellent, excellent, excellent resource whenever they give like a course for professionals and parents. So that was a lot of different stuff, but those are all like excellent resources that I have found to kind of expand your knowledge base. Um, And then talking with other professionals is always a great way to, to kind of get a little bit more insight. Absolutely. Connecting with other professionals and The internet thankfully makes that pretty easy these days. So reaching out and connecting. How about families? If if a family, you know, gets the news that their child has a hearing loss, where would you, is there a website that is family friendly and has good information for a family kind of just starting on this journey with their child that you'd recommend? So hearingfirst.org has made their stuff very, um, I find family friendly as well as professional friendly. I give my parents a lot of handouts from there. If you're looking for some different options, Hands and Voices is a great one. They generally have state associations too, uh, but Hands and Voices tends to be more encompassing of not just listening and spoken language, but kind of all of the communication modalities that a family might be looking into. Okay, great. Good. Thank you. And um, Sydney, how about if anybody that's listening today has any specific questions that they'd like to ask you, or they just want to reach out and keep in touch with you, 
what contact information, um, how can they get a hold of you? Okay. So you can um, find me at, on Instagram at the listening SLP. You can find me on Facebook at the listening SLP. And if you want to send me an email, you can email me at the listening SLP at gmail.com. Awesome. Sydney, thank you so much for your time, for sharing all that you know about childhood hearing loss with us today. We just appreciate you being with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us for another episode of More Than Child's Play podcast. Please follow us on Facebook, find us on Instagram at Milestones Miracles and on Twitter at Milestones M.